0: On episode 23 of the Game Developers podcast, Out of Play Area, we welcome Johnny Wu, a QA director for Riot Games, down in Santa Monica in Los Angeles. He's got me beat for miles traveling across this amazing industry, where he's honed his craft since early Electronic Arts Canada, from Vancouver to Montreal, where then he went to Zynga in Toronto, then on to King in the London and UK, then came back over into Seattle, where he transitioned down to LA to work on Apex Legends for Respawn. He's got some wild stories and even deeper insight on how he's navigated these industry streets. Please welcome, repping our great neighbors to the north, Johnny Woo! Let's fall out.
1: Bienvenido, bienvenue. Welcome to the Out of Play Area Podcast
0: a show by video game devs for game devs where the guests open up one-on-one about their journey, their experiences, their views, and their ideas. No ads, no bullshit. Join us as we venture far out of the play area with your host, seasoned game designer, John Diaz.
1: What part of California are you in? So I'm in Los Angeles in an area called the Valley, which is just, I guess, north of downtown LA and north of really like the center is where a lot of families go out to live and obviously the real estate is so expensive in LA that people have sort of moved outwards from Mm -hmm. the city. LA is a really interesting city I think compared to some of the other areas I've lived there's no like Montreal there's like a downtown area then people But in LA, there's like various pockets of different things. And a lot of it is car driven, getting around. Isn't like a European city or isn't like Seattle or London or Montreal, Vancouver. It's like you really need a car to get around the city. So the traffic's one of the main gripes and complaints that people have here. You need a car to get around LA, but the traffic makes it so that you don't
0: want to be in a car.
1: Yeah. And it's one of those things that people always say, like the friends or people you see are the people who live in the same part of LA as you do, because you would just never drive an hour, an hour and a half to go see someone. It's just not worth it to make that drive. And it's just a bit too stressful. But
0: And it's an hour just to cover like a handful of
1: miles. Yeah, for sure. The hack is a motorcycle that's the way so there are like more central areas in LA like Santa Monica more kind of walkable areas but I would say like a lot of cities you can get away without owning a car LA is definitely not one of those a lot of times where you work really dictates where you live obviously during the pandemic most of us are in our living rooms in our bedrooms (laughs) that commuting to work hasn't been like something that an activity that people had to do but it's an interesting, diverse kind of city. There's, I think compared to like Seattle or San Francisco, the other cities up the West Coast, it's more really tech heavy, right? Like you walk mm-hmm. around Seattle, you go like Belltown or all those areas. It's like Amazon employees. You see the badges flying around when you're walking, the backpacks, the hoodie, all those things are like characteristics of like tech employees. But LA is like a blend of huge entertainment industry. So people who come here with dreams to make it big and acting, singing, all these different kind of industries that melt together and like a very vibrant games industry as well. So we have Sony here, we have Blizzard in Irvine, which yep, made a lot of the great games that we grew up with. Riot, where I currently work, is in Santa Monica and Respawn before that was in the Valley. So a lot of collection of high-end games game talent and game studios but yep it's a really interesting city to i've only been here for two and a half years so a lot of that was colored by covid for a really long time because you we were just staying inside more than half of it yeah more, more than half of this so that colors your experience a bit right so not being able to do a lot of those things that you wanted to do when you move to a new city right but now it's sort of getting better, but sort of getting worse again with like the Delta variant and just trying to live life alongside this pandemic. Yeah, trying to figure it out. And trying to enjoy a new city can be challenging as well. I'm always surprised
0: that LA actually has public transportation, right? Like it has a red <laughs> road that covers kind of the hot spots you care about, but I never hear people talk about it.
1: Yeah, it's one of those things where you kind of need a mass following for the city to invest in it properly or like to have some serious kind of legs behind a good public transportation system. If you look at like, I think Montreal has a good underground subway system yeah, and a bus system that most people take and like most European cities have that. Even if you look at like San Francisco, Seattle, I think those cities have better public transportation than LA. Because LA, everyone sort of owns a car. Public transportation hasn't really caught on. But I feel like living in the United States, public transportation is not as good as a lot of parts of the rest of the world where it's just like a natural mode of transport to go to work. Mm -hmm. Whereas the subway system can take you almost everywhere, LA is definitely not one of those cities. (laughs) i see you got a bike back there you ride i used to ride a lot i think lately i haven't been it's it's a bit hard when it's this hot out and it's just Uh, you get tired quite easily but yeah i think you'd be great to live in a city like amsterdam or a city like that where you can use your bicycle as the main mode of transport that's like more efficient. You get some exercise out of it, which is great. And like you kind of stay active as well. So it's a great way to get around. I would say LA compared to like bicycle commuting cities, LA people mostly do it for sport Mm -hmm. as an activity rather than, oh, I need to go to work or or meet up with my friends and stuff like that. Yeah. The infrastructure is not that friendly, like sharing roads out there is dangerous. Yeah. And generally like if you live in a city where people are not used to sharing the road with bicyclists that cyclists that they don't know how to interact with you you get a bit too close to each other when they say la has the worst drivers in the world it's actually like pretty accurate so <laughs> it's, like, it's got some of the worst driving habits practices at least in most of the cities i've been in where people run red lights people don't signal there's a lot of rage, man. People, a lot of people rage. in a rush. They're always in a rush, and they're always in traffic, and they're like begrudged. LA is like one of those cities where people always have somewhere they need to be, friends they need to see, a gig they need to go to, or yeah. like it's like a very gig economy city too. So because the nature of the entertainment industry is so unpredictable, that you it's know, like side jobs. Side jobs. I'm an Uber driver. Uh, I deliver food. I also do voice acting. All these different things sort of have to go together, and it's probably been worse during the pandemic when those jobs or those industries began to slow or stop altogether because people couldn't meet in studio. There's some huge studios here, like CBS, Warner Brothers. Yeah, all those studios are here had to close down during the pandemic, so a lot of people had to get a lot of these gig economy jobs. What are you drinking? Uh, I'm drinking a Jameson. So I would say on the lower end of kind of whiskeys, I think mm-hmm. uh, I generally like Japanese scotches, Japanese oh. whiskeys. Yes, man. Yes. We should crack some of that out. Yeah, Japanese uh, whiskeys and like nice scotches. But yeah, decided to go with the Jameson today, which is. Just... That's like a guilty pleasure. It's like nostalgic. Nostalgic from my time in university where you're maximizing the amount of money you spend to get drunk. And like, you don't want that ratio to be too high because you had no money.
0: You're on a college budget. Jameson gets the job done. Yeah, man. I was going to have some tea. It's been a long day. A lot of talking, a lot of meetings. GDC is happening. And so you convinced me. So I brought down some also accessible Christian Brothers brandy. (laughs) (laughs) Poured
1: that into my tea. And we were ready to go, man. So cheers. Cheers, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be on uh, this podcast.
0: I was connected to you through Steve Beauchamp. He was like, yo, you got to hit up Johnny. And it turns out we know one other person in common. <laughs> turns out we both know or have
1: worked with Jerome Perron. Actually, me and Jerome were together briefly in, in Quebec, in Montreal. So I think that's where he is still. Yeah, he's at Warner Brothers working on that Gotham Knights we worked at the EA Studio in Montreal, and that was... Was that Visceral back then? I think it was just called EA Mobile. The studio was in, uh, I don't know if your listeners know this, list, in Placeville-Marie, which is McGill Met- Metro Station, yeah. and uh, EA Mobile occupied one floor, Visceral, and I think another studio, BioWare, BioWare yeah. occupied the floor below, and um, I was on the mobile team upstairs working on a very early stage mobile games so that was where me and jerome kind of interacted i I don't think he was on the mobile side i think he was more on the console what they used to call traditional box products so sports and some of those franchises i love how
0: as i do this podcast and interact with people that i haven't met before there's always some cross pollination or we've walked similar roles right so it's awesome to hear that you were old ea slash new ea and then (laughs) now you're at riot yeah, we got a bunch of listeners from Montreal. So shout out to the to the homies. Como se va?
1: <laughs> yeah, Montreal is one of those cities where I moved there as a, obviously I only spoke English, but it's one of those cities you can get away without speaking French. Yes. Like in Montreal, and I think because of that, I think humans need to be forced into kind of situations where they're forced to learn. But Montreal wasn't one of those cities where I think you had to learn French to yeah. kinda of get by the day to day, I think. But yeah, it was a it was like a European city in Canada. Totally. It's a lot of traditional French architecture. It's sort of like the bars and nightlife there was very sort of European Mm -hmm. focus. So when I moved there, I think I was in my early twenties and that's a good place to be in your early twenties. That's a great place to be in your early twenties. But one of the things that was interesting was that people don't go out till like eleven or twelve. Yeah. That's the East Coast, man. New York's the same way. That's the East Coast. And it's like, oh man, I'm like you just get home from work, you're tired. I also lived in London for a long time. People went out right after work in London, whereas in Montreal people I think they went home, Yeah, they took a out. nap, yep. they ate their dinner, then came out later and maybe stayed out until like the early hours of the morning as well. I like
0: that London vibe. It was something else when I first saw it, because you're seeing these people dressed up in their business attire and they're falling out the bars, man. So as soon as you get out of work, the bars are packed Yeah, and it's like 11 PM and they're still at the bar, man. And then they like rinse, repeat at it the next day right back at work, super sharp the next day. I'm like, how do you do that?
1: Yeah, I mean, some of us are not super sharp the next day, depending (laughs) on how many pints of beer you've had. But again, this is also like how cities are set up Mm -hmm. being important, right? Because London was generally a public transportation city. You took the underground or like a bus to get home. Whereas L.A., you couldn't really do that because you have to drive home after. So far, man, cabs are expensive. Yeah, you have to drive so far. or You have a cab or you have to leave your car at work. And it just didn't make a lot of sense. But London has like a very special, like Montreal has a very special energy to the city. Totally. When you're there, it's hard to describe, but you feel the energy coming from the people around you. And yeah, you kind of feed off that. But it's like, yeah, it's one of those cities that I think it's great to live in at any point in your life and just have that experience. I'm with you, man, London,
0: Montreal, they have an energy. It's contagious. It's infectious, right? You want to be all reclusive and introvert and it's, it's going to pull you out. It's going to lure you, come hang out, come have a drink, Yeah, meet the team, air out your frustrations, things like that.
1: Yeah, for sure. And like English people love moaning and like just like having that kind of moment afterward to kind of just complain yep, just unwind from the day and just like have a few beers and i think that's a great kind of way to kind of finish out the day call it a decompressing you know yeah. what i'm saying it's weird working from home right
0: like everything's here so i know a lot of alcohol consumption went up through the pandemic And it's funny, man. Like I I never really felt like I got that decompression, right? Like I'd be at my desk working and I was like, all right, I'm done. Let me log off. Okay. Let me pour myself, whatever. And it would still feel like my mind's at work or I'm not really disconnected. I'm not really recharging, man. it's, It's
1: weird. It's one of those things where I think we all went through this work from home period for the last 18 months. I'm going to say we, I think generally just a lot of tech people, like yeah. knowledge workers. Yeah. It's not knowledge. Some people didn't have the option of working from home. And it's sort of like, there's no kind of beginning or end to your workday where you, you start your, your workday by getting to work, whether that's commuting, driving, that's when your day starts and you end the day by driving home. So it's like a weird blend of life and work happening all at once where Basically, I wake up and there's my office, right? Yeah. Uh, and and then the days kind of the day, it's kinda knowing when to kind of disconnect from work and that being really important as well. But yeah, it's interesting experience. I think at the beginning it took a bit of adjustment, but I think now for most part, like companies like EA, Activision, Riot, all these big game companies have figured out how to be effective from working from home mm-hmm. and. Who knows how that will inform like, the future guidance around companies' stance and kind of approach to working at home. We saw that Facebook just said people can work from home permanently, right? And other options like hybrid models that uh, other companies are going for. So it'd be interesting to see how the office space and the workplace sort of changes into the future as well.
0: Yeah, it's a really exciting time and I never thought that the game industry would get here. And now that it is, I can't picture it ever going back, right? Like there has to be some type of hybrid or on and off. We're in the office these days or, you know, set your schedules a certain way. I hope anyway.
1: Uh, And a lot of people have also like moved out of the big city as well. Like as part of this pandemic where people wanted more space, they wanted a garden. They wanted a yard mm-hmm. because when we moved here, we moved into a two-bedroom apartment, which was fine. But because we're at home almost the entire day, the space can get a bit smaller. If you have an office, you need to set that up and that your whole kind of space changes because all of a sudden you're not at the office 10 to 12 hours a day. You're at home. So you have to kind of adjust your working space uh, yeah. to make it work. Like a lot of times you're on Zoom calls and you see people like with all sorts of shit around their house. They have to work in the living room because their husband or wife is working in the office and stuff like that. And kids are at home
0: and pets are demanding your attention. It's handy to have separation if you can get it. So that's why people tend to want a little bit more space. You're a Riot, you're a QA
1: director. What does a QA director do? What's your day-to-day look like? It could vary a lot depending on company size or where you work. Uh, But my role right now is mostly to set the direction of where I see the team going. So uh, what are the important priorities that we should work on? What are the important initiatives that the team should go after? in the short, medium, or long-term. And it's really kind of setting that direction strategically for the team, but also making sure that we have a good approach to delivering our current products, right? So, for example, at Respawn, we were working on Apex Legends live service, and that was a game that was a 60-player battle royale. We did a release every two to four weeks. It's a very seasonal, content-based game. So making sure that on one hand, you're supporting the live service, live project, but also making good decisions around like where your team needs to be strategically long term. Should you invest in areas like better test automation, better tooling, better approaches towards work, as mean like how the QA team works with the rest of the development team, all these different things that you want to have a hand in, I think. I'm in the point of my career where I'm not doing a lot of individual contributions like a tester or engineer or data analyst or those roles. But it's mostly a lot of my day is people management, working with different stakeholders across all the different functions and roles within the studio and making sure that whatever the QA team is working on is aligned with what the company prioritizes and what Mm -hmm. the company feels is important. So I'm making good decisions around that.
0: That's impactful, man. That's a great position to be in these days, right? Like it sounds like leading strategy, handling personnel and figuring out what's the biggest bang for your buck for the resources you're going to have. How often does that change out of curiosity? Like do you plan for six months, a year, then things change?
1: Yeah, I think your goals do change as sort of like the company maybe shifts its focus or priorities around the project. There are a lot of differences working on a game that's in hyper-growth, right? So what do you need to support? A game like Candy Crush Saga, which was in hyper-growth for a very long time, versus a game that is a mature product or a game that you're about to sunset, right? So all those kind of situations can change your approach in how you look at your medium and sort of uh, longer-term goals. In general, I think you want to think in a way where you can anticipate... What the future needs of the project or the the studio or the office are and how to make the best decisions to anticipate that and that could mean like you need to increase the technical abilities within your qa team you need to invest in better tooling around automation staging environments all these different things to kind of better meet maybe not necessarily just the current demands of the project but future needs and demands of the project and also using that So let's just say that's the direction you want to go. Also understanding, like, do we have the right team to be able to support those goals, right? So a lot of times you may need to hire for those skills or you need to develop those skills within your team internally and really focusing on what the studio and the project needs first rather than what your current team can deliver. So if your current team can't deliver on some of the longer term priorities and goals, you can look at ways to kind of build some of the expertise through hiring, through internal kind of skills, professional development, through kind of transfers within the company. All these things are sort of at your disposal when you're thinking about long-term strategic planning. That's cool, man. That's something that actually hasn't come up a lot
0: on this show is long-term strategic planning, right? Like What are all the cards available to you in this game, right? Like we've actually talked about developing your team and we talk about hiring, but I'd be curious to know what have you used in your experience for, okay. My team needs to learn a new console generation or console cycle or new product coming out versus, hey, we just don't have this expertise. We need to look externally or internally for transfers, right? Like, how do you approach that?
1: Yeah. So I think really focusing on like what the problem you're trying to solve is and understanding what skills are needed to meet those problems, right? So let's just take a very common problem within QA. A lot of our testing is very manual. It's very black box. It's very non-technically driven. And how do we move from there to more test automation, more build kind of verification? All these different things require someone or team with different skills. Sometimes it's not like a transformative thing you need to do with your team, but maybe you just need to do slight, sort of augmentations within your team to kind of get there. But it's really like understanding what the problems you're trying to solve and what kind of skills are required to kind of solve those problems. And when you're working for any business, right, it's not a perfect situation where you can build all the perfect team that make the product where the product is already going, right? So the, the car is already on the road, it's driving. Yep. It's really how do you make improvements to the car And keeping the car moving at the same time and that can be like a bit of a juggling act sometimes but it's something that we need to think about a lot of times you go into companies or teams with varying levels of maturity right like it's like a very sliding scale right sometimes you join a team where they're just starting out building a new project building a new product and they have very immature processes they're not working in sort of an agile sort of way or and it's how do you kind of inject solutions there A lot of like how you think about these things is really depend on where the team is currently at and like what realistically you can accomplish within like the short and medium term. You brought up something super interesting
0: is to say you're taking an immature team, right? A team that's just kind of taking work as it comes. We call it like a chicken without their head. So what you said processes aren't in place. And one step in that direction is maybe dropping in Agile methodologies. Is that something you've seen to be successful, right? like, okay, boom, Agile is going to work for X, Y, Z reasons. And how long does that take to implement?
1: Yeah, I think really depends, right? I think if you're working like at an early stage startup, maybe like sub 20, 30 people, I think it might not make sense to adopt Agile right away, I think if your goal then is to kind of quickly deliver products, MVPs, and early iterations of what you want, Agile might not be the best solution for that. In lieu of Agile, what would work for a team of that size with that goal? You could use a waterfall approach to kind of delivering that product. All these different things are at your disposal i think in the last 10 maybe 10 12 years agile has become a very big philosophy and practice in software development oh yeah
0: seems like everybody throws it out there man it's like oh first thing i want to do agile kanban
1: jira And it's definitely made its way into the games world and really depending on where you work. But I think in most modern day game development studios, Agile is the Bible for developing, I agree, and making games. And Agile does a lot of great things in terms of it gives the team some predictability in what you need to do how how fast you're going to accomplish work, what are your goals at the end of each two-week sprint, four-week sprint, however you want to structure it. And I think as a project manager, producer, it gives the team a lot of empowerment to know what to work on and know what, what are the important things that they should care about as part of each sprint and what they need to deliver. And I think it also gives teams the ability to have really early iterations of the product to test, to see and play as well, Yeah, which just goes into that failing fast mentality is like we don't wanna be working for years and not really knowing what the product is or where the product needs to be. So Agile has offered a lot of flexibility there. And I think it's really good that modern game development has really adopted this as an important practice.
0: I'm a big fan, right? Fail fast, get something on screen, something that you can control, nail down the feeling, the experience, right? As opposed to living in the theoretical space or paper design and just talking in hypotheticals, especially when it comes to creatives, right? Like we can be in meetings till the end of time talking
1: about how things should work or even if they're feasible. I think failing fast is a really, really important aspect. It's like, you want to know as soon as possible. To validate whether your product or your feature or that decision was the right one and i think the mm-hmm. earlier you can do it the better i think think about it this way like if you're building a feature or a game think about what you don't need to validate this product and you can cut everything out anything that's like time consuming like polish or anything like that and just get to the core of the gameplay that you want to deliver to players and validate that first before diving deep in a lot of those other areas. That's the way, right? Like scope
0: early, scope <laughs> often, toss out what doesn't work, and figure out what does. Yeah, I'm curious, Johnny. What led you into games? Where did this
1: love, this fascination? Where did it all start? Like most people, so I'm 36, 80s baby. Yeah, I grew up in the 80s, but within the internet generation, right? I think the internet mm. was prolific in the late 90s and that opened up all sorts of doors for people to have access to information to communicate with each other like email video conferencing but also like gaming as well so i grew up like a lot of kids playing the really early stage sort of blizzard games that came out so games like warcraft 3 diablo all those games are like very classic games that people started with back then who were interested in this space. And back then it was mostly single player experiences at the start because when I got internet, it was the 56K sort of modem, up. so dial-up. So there's quite a lot of limitations on like connections to servers, how you interact with different people. But I think that's where really my love of games came back then my parents had bought this computer. and. A place where like me and my brother just spent so much time on is just like exploring the internet, playing games like Counter-Strike, which we played a lot. Mm -hmm. All those games kind of like led me into the games industry. And it's one of those funny stories because I think I started my first testing job in 2005, 2006 at EA. They call it EA Vancouver now, but back then it was called EAC in Burnaby in uh, British Columbia. So it was like a big Canadian office they had there like one of the biggest and so i guess yeah. what,
0: is the eac just for ea canada
1: yeah it was a period of time where they're developing a lot of the sports titles there so i, I got a chance to work on early 2000s, mid 2000s nba titles some of the hockey franchises how i fell into that role was kind of interesting this is i guess how old i am but like jobs recruitment worked very differently now than it did then i think you had published an ad in a local newspaper and i actually had emailed <laughs> EA, I guess it was like a recruiting email on that newsletter, and that's how I got my job there. And it was back then EA had like very rudimentary kind of tests to get into QA roles. It was like looking at uh, a video. I think the game was Need for Speed, like Hot Pursuit, one of those Need for Speed titles, and just really identifying what the bugs were, making sure that you you have good written. Skills writing bugs, writing bug reports. That was sort of like a lot of the validation for me to get that job. Was this like a, a take
0: home test or were you brought on site and were like, all right, watch this game and fill out a bug
1: report or how how was it structured? It was on-site, I think. So it was on-site, and because EA had needed so many testers back then, they, need bodies. they needed bodies and seats to be able to test these. Back then, it was box product, right? So you worked on products for a very long time, then they they deliver, and then you never saw that product again, and you work on the next iteration of that. So they were really looking for testing bodies to obviously test the game, file bugs, but to, to have this mass resource to kind of help them with the outcome of delivering a quality game, obviously, right? So... Uh, we were on site. It was like group interviews. It was like various kind of tests and like one-on-one interviews to kind of get that job. How many rounds? Yeah. Was it like one day, several days? Yeah, so I think it started with a recruiter calling you. Yeah, the phone screen. The phone screen. Talked a little bit about why you were interested in the job. What What did you know about EA? EA at that point was already a massive company, right? Yeah. So in the mid-2000s, EA was, really hitting stride as sort of like a leader in the console and PC space and just making like very recognizable kind of titles like Need for Speed, FIFA. Those were like Underground was big
0: at the time. Obviously, everybody can recite EA Sports. It's in the (laughs) game, right? And I think Sims was coming or like SimCity. uh, Yeah. Probably Command & Conquer. Things like this.
1: Yeah. And like yeah, it actually had a lot more franchises back then than it does now but like SSX all these a skateboarding game a Tiger Woods golf game yeah all these uh Madden which was obviously made in uh, Tiburon uh, in Florida Medal uh, of Honor I think was their shooter yeah and it was this really like large gaming company and on one hand I think godfather i think they had some open yeah. world games yeah godfather and all these and like some of the licensed games like harry potter and stuff like that that did they, they have
0: the potter license Didn't yeah you? they had
1: the potter license for a bit and i think for me at that time was just a lot of excitement to get work experience working for such a large video game publisher company and i think I'm sure they're big in Vancouver, like everybody knows them. Vancouver, they're probably like overwhelmingly the largest employer of tech games talent in British Columbia. And there's a lot of smaller game studios there. But by far, I think I wouldn't be surprised if they employed thousands of people in Vancouver as part of that studio and campus there. So I think for most of us, our first job, right, like you didn't know really what to expect. I mean, I had jobs before then, but this was like the first sort of professional Okay. Experience that you got was like working in a company, being accountable for certain things and working in an office environment with other folks. I think that was a really interesting experience. Early days in terms of QA approaches to testing, I learned a lot from very talented people there. And also, like a lot of people who I used to work with in that studio are still there in uh, Vancouver. So it's good to see that a lot of people have stuck around and had a lot of longevity in their careers at EA.
0: Yeah, man, I'm always surprised that I talk to people who have been at EA for over 10 plus years. So something good's got to be happening there.
1: Yeah. And like you get to work on IP that's globally recognized, which is great. It's like everyone's heard of FIFA. Yeah. Everyone's heard of Madden. internationally, like you can go anywhere in the world and people will know what you're talking about with EA games, which is not the case for smaller studios or lesser known IPs as well. So yeah, it gave you a chance to kind of work on project with huge impact and huge reach. So that was a really exciting time. When you came on, did you come on as like a full-time employee, benefits and all that? No, I came on as what they call the contract tester, where back then QA was viewed very differently than it is now so in the sense that testing was seen as really like we need to get this project out we're close to kind of shipping and we just need to pile bodies on bodies to kind of test and get the bugs out so it was a contract role that was paid hourly it was a very small kind of hourly wage but i think that wasn't the most important part at that point in my career where it was more so just to really get experience in the industry and in the sense that that experience that you got was way more important for later on in your career than the $10 an hour that you made as part of work there. 100%. I'm curious, if you put yourself back in those shoes, like Johnny
0: circa mid-2000s, you were a avid gamer, right? You played a bunch of PC games. Now you're coming into EA and now you're testing. Was there any big surprises
1: about how games are made? Yeah, I think a lot of times people view those sports titles that EA makes as like, very small iterative changes because you're going from one season of FIFA to the next and it's like maybe roster updates or anything like this but I had no professional working experience and just seeing like all the artists that you need all the software engineers all the management layers that you need to make a game was really eye-opening and interesting for me because you go into these games and like you see like how big the studio is and like how big the investment into those franchises were yeah and you just kind of really understand like the sheer monumental undertaking making a game really requires. And just like how hard it is to get a build from the early stages to a very polished finished product was not an easy undertaking. So it's just like a lot of iterative stuff, a lot of working with QA to kind of make sure that where our approach to testing was correct, we're testing the right areas of the game, all these different things. It's interesting obviously like you can make a game two people in the garage but the production quality won't be nearly as good as like what some of these big companies like ea or activision or blizzard are, are pumping out today for sure it's a it's a resources numbers game you
0: would have told me how many people it takes to make <laughs> a game i'd be like yeah like 10 20 people and come to find that it's several hundreds you know that's always a big shock to a lot of people like I could make a game, right? Like, well, you could. It's going to take you a while and it's not going to look that good. Yeah. But today is different, right? Today is a whole different world, right? Like a bunch of assets for free online, a uh, bunch of engines and tools and open source code and scripts that
1: you hit the ground running, which is mind blowing to me. Yeah, for sure. And like making a game is far more accessible now than it was 20 years ago. Hmm. Uh, Yeah, like you said, you have game engines like Unity with the Unity Storefront. I may not have the money to hire artists or UI designers, but I can certainly buy some of those assets for like a really small fraction of the cost and make a game myself with like you can self-teach. A lot of programmers are self-taught or game developers are self-taught. So it's become more democratic people's ability to kind of make a game and I think that's great and like also the platforms to kind of submit have your games be published on have become a lot more democratic as well so we can publish a game on the Apple App Store and the Android Store quite easily and Steam yeah Steam whereas before making a game was really a multi-million dollar production Oh, yeah. Because you have a physical product and you ship to stores to kind of get your product to that stage to have a box product was really expensive. And I think just learning about that process was really influential and like interesting part of my career. And I think a lot of it was also trial by fire, first job, lots of overtime, lots of grinding it out within like the QA ranks at EA, but a lot lot of people go into QA with the idea that they're going to be in other parts of the game industry. Yeah, totally. Other functions in the game's world, and certainly I've managed a lot of people who've gone on to become developers, artists, producers, and into those roles, but it's nice to be able to stay in this kind of discipline and also see how that's evolved over time. Yeah, definitely want to pick your brain on
0: the evolution of the craft of the field, in particular for yourself, right? Like when you broke in and what your interview process was like, and then what your day-to-day was like early on compared to what it is now, what do you look for when you're trying to bring people in onto
1: your team? That's a great question. I think there's a lot of combination of experience and attitude and approach. So let's just say this, if I could bring someone with less experience, but a great attitude, or someone with a lot of experience, but not really like the best attitude towards work. I always choose someone who is on the the less experienced side, but who can grow within the team and be really kind of proud of their work and be really kind of integral team member, not mm-hmm. just as a IC individual contributor, but also someone who can like work well within the team. A lot of QA is also like you need someone with good people skills, good kind of verbal communication skills as you're working with not just the QA team, but you're working with production, you're working with art, you're working with a ton of developers and being able to communicate well, whether that's written or verbal, I think Mm -hmm. is a really important part of this role. A lot of the concepts, guiding principles we kind of are taught in QA can be learned and can be kind of educated on over time. But I think the attitude part is hard to change in someone you hire, right? So if they have a bad attitude, Bad to do a poor approach to work. That is a much tougher kind of problem or not to crack. So, in short, that's what I look for. Obviously, like experience brings like all the requisite skills that you might need around test planning, good test case management, good bug writing, good eye for quality as well. So, what makes a quality product is important. So, we're not there just to find bugs, but we're also there to help deliver a good player experience as well. Mm-hmm. So, people who care about that part of the game as well so if you feel like a new feature is coming out that really has sort of adverse effects on the player experience, is that they're able to point that out and be able to contribute that design feedback back to the team as well
0: totally totally i like that i like that a lot man that's super encouraging like someone comes and applies and they have a ton of experience right they've mm-hmm. QA'd for many years on lots of different huge console and PC titles. They even got mobile experience. What are some of the flags that you spot, maybe, or that you check for to be like, hmm, I see something here. I want you to kind of probe deeper, kind of thing. What are some of the flags that you tend to find or you tend to
1: like check for? Some of the flags or indicators. I think I like to hire people with a very open mind towards solving problems or issues. So, they come into those problems with a collaborative mindset in how mm. to kind of solve those problems rather than uh, with a mindset like, oh, I've done this before. This is how we're going to do it because it's worked for me uh, necessarily in the past. I think while that is somewhat important, I think uh, having someone with an open mind and collaborative mindset will help build good relationships with yeah. the development team. I think that's a really important part of this is like not to hire people who are like too dogmatic in their beliefs or into kind of like there's one way to solve the problem. this is the the one way we're gonna do it, but like having someone with like some flexibility in mm-hmm. How they're thinking and their problem solving, I think, is really important. And obviously, like, I think that feeds a lot into how someone critically thinks uh, about a product too. So, like, sort of like that strategic mindset as well. So, like, for example, like when we were working on Candy Crush, which is a match three game, uh, people hopefully have heard of it. Uh, <laughs> this is work for King, right? King, King. yeah, with yeah. King is that where was King? King was a Scandinavian company. Yeah, it started in Sweden, but it had offices of various sizes over europe and in the united states and their claim to fame was obviously candy crush it was kind of crazy just working on a product with that much reach and that much kind of millions uh,
0: millions per day man like tens yeah. of millions if not hundreds of millions per day what where was the office that you worked out of
1: yeah so i worked out of the london the ah, UK, okay the That's uk office the uk yeah, so that's when I was in the UK and we, we worked on like a variety of kind of like new products and like existing King products as well. But it was just crazy to see the sheer reach and magnitude of the games that we we're working on. I had worked at a lot of companies before where I had huge followings, like a lot of users, but King basically added another zero on the end of the user base and it was just like I think at at peak, King had like 400 million monthly active users or something just insane 400 million active monthly 400 million people had played that game at least once that month so that was a really interesting place to be where like you had super passionate people about the product and like interesting to be part of a company that's also in this hyper growth stage as well so when you talk about hyper growth that's interesting we haven't really
0: discussed A lot on the show. I'm curious what that changes about the environment or the goals. Like, hey, we're in hyper growth. Could you explain that? Because I would assume that that means we're just trying to get as much people playing this game, and we're trying to grow. We're trying to hire and grow
1: and expand. I think when I joined King in 2014, it was like around maybe 600 employees. By the time I left, it was in the thousands, almost doubled. Yeah, yeah. The company had grown sort of orders of magnitude during my time there and I think because Candy Crush was such a monumental success yeah, they really wanted to replicate that success in other mobile games so in the London studio we released a really big match 3 farm game that was called Farm Heroes and that was a game that probably generated $150 million per year. So I think two to three hundred thousand dollars per day. So I think they wanted to replicate success as fast as they can, but also to diversify their products outside of the Candy Crush space. So even though Candy Crush was a massive success, they also wanted to have success in other genres, other games as well. So hybrid growth is like a really interesting time to be. Within a company, there's a lot of people being hired, a lot of change in the strategy, a lot of teams being spun up. And it can be a bit distracting sometimes because you're constantly onboarding people, which is taxing on your current team to be able to train, integrate these new people in your team. And it can also be hard to preserve a culture when you're growing so quickly as well because you may have this one core culture with your team, but that culture can quickly erode or get lost in the weeds over kind of like the space of a few years when you inject thousands of people into your company who may not necessarily kind of like share the same beliefs or share the same principles so it's very different from a mature company where in a mature company you have a few stable franchises that's what you're working on you're working on the fifas you're working on the maddens of the world and you're taking less speculative punts on like new ip and stuff like that whereas king generally had a very open mind in taking really big risks and really big blue ocean plays into what the next hits are going to be and really willing to fail. I think we failed a lot in terms of like what genre we selected, what IP we selected. But the one thing that is kind of like commendable is that the leadership team really had ambitious goals for like where they see the company what they wanted to do. So yeah, it was a super interesting time. Got to work with some really amazing group of people. People were quite talented. And I think the interesting thing about mobile games is that it's also reached hundreds of millions of new gamers as well. So if you think about our parents' generation, your mom, your dad, they weren't necessarily gamers before mobile proliferated. So mobile games sort of brought Access to these Mm -hmm. games onto people's phones. If you can walk around, kind of like on the subway or the tube, it's like people are playing on their phones, playing games all the time. Yeah, people who you didn't necessarily think were gamers are gamers now. A lot of people like to scoff at mobile games because it's sort of like less immersive experience than console when you're sitting in front of your TV. But it's it's really brought a lot of new gamers into this ecosystem that otherwise weren't going to be gamers. Like my mom is not going to buy a souped up pc and (laughs) start playing apex but maybe she will play like a super casual game on her phone and i think that's super awesome for our game industry and the world of gaming absolutely
0: man the more gamers we have the better and to be fair the triple a space or the big console developers have definitely learned a ton from mobile there's a lot of practices that didn't exist until mobile came along that were like hey it's a good idea, man. These like free to play and selling add-ons and maintaining a game, right? Versus like the old model was like box product, one or two DLCs, and then we're moving on. Now, I really think on the strength of mobile is why we ended up with games like Apex Legends, yep,
1: Fortnite, things like this. If you can picture like when we bought games 20 years ago, you mm-hmm. paid $60, sometimes more expensive, sometimes cheaper. To buy the box product you loaded the cd and you play the game and the entire game was basically after the initial purchase didn't come at any cost to you right Mm -hmm. whereas now a game like apex legends which is free to download you can enjoy the game thoroughly like have a thoroughly immersive experience without paying a single dollar so What that means is that you can introduce new players to the game who are otherwise hesitant to spend sixty dollars on a game. Sixty dollars is a lot of money, right? To kind of spend on a game that you may or may not like, right? So Mm -hmm. and if you choose, like you can buy in-game purchases, in-app purchases that gives you like a cosmetic boost or anything like that. And I think that's really where the industry has headed over the last five to seven years, is if you think about the app store back like 10, 12 years ago, it's like you had a lot of games that cost three ninety nine, five ninety nine, a dollar ninety nine. Yeah, a yeah, dollar. Like Angry Birds when it came out, they had a paid version that was, I think, two ninety nine. Now you rarely see that outside of maybe like fairly really niche utility apps, utility products. So you can download those games, play for free, and enjoy that experience. And whether the game monetized via advertisements or in game purchases, you can choose whether to interact with those items or not. But I can play thousands of games for free right now. And I think yeah, that's cool. And that's really interesting. And like, it helps bring new gamers into this world, old and new, right? We're in a great
0: space, like you said, right? We're opening it up to a whole different generation of people that weren't really quote unquote gamers who now had this device that could play a game that worked with their life, right? That they can pick up, play a couple of minutes and then be done with it or continue to play. When you were at King, what were you doing at King? I'm curious how things changed as it went through that period of like hyper growth.
1: When I arrived at King in London, it was still a relatively new studio at that time. The really established studio was a studio in Stockholm. That's their headquarters? Yeah, which was the headquarters where the founders originally kind of initiated the company. They founded it in Stockholm, and that's where the Candy Crush franchise lives. It still lives there, so... When I got to London, the studio was still quite new. I was one of the really the first QA people brought onto the team. And so I looked over the QA team over in London, sort of like the QA manager for that studio. The interesting changes that you kind of go through is that when a team is in hyper growth, they don't necessarily see us testing as an important part of delivering products because their goal right now, was to deliver products as soon as possible, as fast as possible to validate that. But with a company like King, we've developed different standards towards quality, what can be released, what shouldn't be released. When we started, we didn't have a lot of QA working directly with game teams. But when I left, QA working within game teams from concept to deployment was like a very common practice already. So uh, it's really shifting what people think about as traditional QA, where you finish your product, you test, they test it, you find the bugs, they fix it, then you release the product too. QA being injected in pre-production at the Mm -hmm. concept stages to validate design, to explore kind of early testing needs, early testing practices, and all the way through when that product was deployed. So it was really like a mindset culture shift that needed to happen at that studio for QA to be successful within that studio. But that was one of the biggest changes I love that
0: actually like I've always found that to be the best use of QA right is embedding them into the team sitting with the developers that they're in those early pre-production meetings so they can see the vision and grow with that and know what to look for ahead of time and be able to contribute to that right like I've seen nothing but good things happen and it's always surprising to me when teams are resistant or hesitant to that they build those walls
1: Yeah, they build those walls, sometimes physical, right? So Different floor, even. Different floor, even. So it was great to see that culture shift. And it was really rewarding. I think as a studio, we were really tasked to deliver new mobile products to augment the game's portfolio at King. People know King for Candy Crush, but they don't know some of the other kind of titles that come out from it. And it's really kind of interesting to work on a lot of new games that came out as part of that studio. Some successful, some not. But one of the nice things about mobile compared to a box product or console products is that you can have very early validation of your product through A-B testing, through yeah. kind of what we call soft launches, where I just wanted to test how my product works in, let's just say, the Philippines. Get some uh, early metrics on retention, on monetization on gameplay changes. And that was really kind of interesting space to be in just to kind of be in that sort of data kind of minded company where they use data to inform a lot of good decisions and when to kind of keep working on a game and when to kind of stop working on a game. And I think those decisions are really critical for your studio's success and it was great to be in that mindset in that world and obviously like getting to live on a different continent was also interesting as well
0: was there any major like culture shocks when you made the transition where did you leave
1: when you got to london toronto oh toronto i had moved from toronto to london i don't think there was any massive culture shocks because london is english-speaking Most people, when they move to another country, there's like some language barriers that they have to overcome. There were not massive culture shocks. I think it was nice to be part of like a very vibrant kind of city where it has like a huge diverse population as well. So like you had people from all parts of Europe, but all parts of like other parts of the world, like Africa, India, North America. And... And this word gets used a lot, but it's sort of like this melting pot of different mm-hmm. cultures and mm-hmm. different languages, and that was really interesting part of of my life as well, so
0: oh, yeah, and you were there at the good time when they were still part of the e u yeah, right, so you can probably jump in a train and
1: get to another country, no problem well, now no one's really traveling, but I was there for the Brexit vote and all those things, so oh snap, were you able yeah. to vote or not because you were like. Yeah, so I'm Canadian, so I think as part of some UK Commonwealth. Yeah, you both honor the same queen. Yeah, we both honor the same queen. Some Commonwealth agreement meant that I could vote in British elections. So that was really interesting. Yeah, my wife is Canadian and apparently
0: I could file for all that. And I've just been lazy about it, man. That gives me more impetus to actually go follow through with my Canadian residency. I'm like, what am I going to gain right now? But it gives me more value. See it now.
1: I think in people's career, I really encourage if you have the opportunity to work in different countries and different cities, there is so much to be gained from that experience, right? Like you're put into maybe more of an uncomfortable situation where Mm -hmm. you don't have a friend space, you don't have kind of like your network, but you're challenged on those things. But you get to make new friends, build your network, but also just explore different parts of the world and cultures as well. Like in Montreal, there was like very vibrant Quebecois culture and, and that was just like I think for personal growth as well as professional growth it means a lot for people's careers to be able to kind of have that experience in like different parts of the world yeah 100% like what
0: you said about you look for people who are naturally more open-minded and and like you said it's it's tough to change someone who's so set in their ways and regimented but all hope is not lost right because typically if you do move and get out of your comfort zone leave your hometown and are forced to learn how to survive with different people different languages different culture having to look right to cross the street instead of
1: left yes yeah yeah. (laughs) the really small things like that i think are interesting and like if i had to tell my younger self or other people who are just starting their careers that if you work for like a big multinational company like Yay, like you can go work at a different office right and you can just transfer internally to get that experience but like it would have been disappointing to just i think work in one city my entire life for sure working in different cities different countries really kind of gives you some perspective and like you said opens up your world a bit and i think Having that international experience is definitely a really nice thing to
0: have. I'm going to corroborate times a million, right? Like it makes you more employable by the sheer nature of you're more open-minded. You have more perspectives on things and also personal growth, right? Like you just become someone who naturally is easier to get along with, right? Or have interesting conversations with, right? Which is an unwritten thing of what we tend to look for when we're looking to bring people onto the team, for sure. Yeah. What moved you to the UK, right? Like, did King bring you out there? And then what
1: brought you back over the Atlantic over here? I'll rewind a bit. So, in 2009, I did the after university thing where you go traveling across a lot of different countries. Nice. Uh-huh. I, I, I don't know if that's as popular as other parts of the world where you graduate, you have no job experience, you go, go travel for a bit. Backpacking. Yeah, so I went backpacking in Southeast Asia. It was one of the more affordable destinations to go to. So I went to Thailand, uh, Malaysia, and like all these other countries. I gotta go, man. They're still on my bucket list to travel as soon as I can.
0: I want to get out there.
1: Yeah, it's one of those pent up feelings that people have right now during the pandemic, yeah. the inability to travel, see people, see family. But so I had done this Southeast Asia trip and I had met tons of people from the UK as part of that, and friends that I'm still in touch with today and I always thought to myself like it would be a really cool experience to go live in London for a few years to have that as part of my life as part of my journey and I think that was always in the back of my mind to kind of make my way Over there, so I moved to the UK for the King job. I had interviewed remotely. They got me a visa to go work in the UK. Me and my girlfriend at that time, now my wife, is that we moved over there. I think really just like not really sure what to expect. Like I said, it's like you're you're sort of challenged in like you don't have any friends immediately. Like all these different things put you in positions of discomfort. But I think that's really good for your personal. That's how you grow. Yeah, personal growth is. To be able to do that, to kind of step out of your shell and be able to do that. So that's a big reason why I went there. I think also London has such close proximity within two hours to so much of Europe as well. So having the ability to travel to different destinations, Portugal, Spain, uh, France, uh, Scandinavia. Different foods, different cultures. Yeah, Spain has great everything basically, right? So like weather, food, drinks, vibrant life, like seaside, kind of if you're in Barcelona. Mm -hmm. So really like having that opportunity to travel out to different destinations was appealing. Like if you think about Canada, right? There's only so much you can do if you fly two hours <laughs> away from Even in the United States, right? Like, yeah. It's just like the difference from me flying from Los Angeles to Texas to the Midwest isn't as different as flying from the UK to, let's just say, Romania, Italy. All these countries Greece. offer a different flavor, like Greece. Yeah, all these different things offer like different peoples, different cultures, different foods. And I think that was a really big appeal of living in London as a travel hub is like your ability to go to these, all these different countries is just magnified. And like, yeah, in your 20s, early 30s, it's definitely like if you have the opportunity even later to do that, I think that's a really uh, amazing kind of incentive for why we went out there. Nice. And like when we came back, how long were you out there? And then what brought you back? So I, I was out in London for close to four years. That's a good run. Yeah, that's a good run. And moved back with King. Actually, King had opened a studio in Seattle. Oh, yeah. I think Fifth and Pine, or uh, like, damn, that's yeah, yeah. right in downtown. Yeah, so right in, right in downtown, they had acquired a studio a few years ago. They were looking for some leadership on the QA side over in that studio. So that's why I moved out here. Other kind of personal reasons. My parents live in Vancouver.
0: Yeah, you're like a two-hour drive, one one-hour flight.
1: And it was nice to be closer to my parents. Unfortunately, the Seattle studio didn't work out because in the end, they decided to close that studio for a lot of different strategic business reasons. But that's really why I came back and like from Seattle, I came down to L.A. where we're currently at. So it's gone like a full circle a bit, Yeah. So from
0: King then to back to EA for Respawn?
1: Yeah. So I went from King in London to King in Seattle. And to respawn, which is part of EA in in Los Angeles. Yeah.
0: Nice, man. So King shuts down Seattle. Mm -hmm. And then you're looking for work. Yep. And you're looking for work. Yeah. LA. Yeah. What led you to LA? Was it the city? Was it
1: the company? Was it the the IP? What was it? Yeah, it was a combination of everything that you just said. (laughs) I think everyone has this very idealized view of LA. It's it's the beaches, Hollywood, it's it's Hollywood, it's a it's a party life, and all these different things. One respawn was a very talented studio. Absolutely, one hundred percent. They had just they delivered Titanfall One, Titanfall Two. When I got there, it was season one of Apex Legends, and I think it was a combination of the studio, uh, the IP that they had, also the opportunity to kind of uh, make an impact on the QA team, uh, respawn as well. So there aren't too many free-to-play console games, but Mm-mm. compared to mobile, right? So, and the battle royale space is also pretty hot right now in terms of like PUBG, Fortnite, Apex, all, all these uh, Call of Duty, Warzone. All these different games are. Make this a very uh interesting space right now so i've done tons of mobile so it was nice for me to kind of step out of that comfort of mobile into like console development working on apex was on nintendo's Nintendo switch xbox ps4 and uh, pc obviously so it was mm-hmm. on like four different platforms so getting to work on a game that was very immersive right like Uh, If you think about playing free-to-play or not free-to-play, but like playing shooters in general, it's like you're very in the zone, right? When you're playing those games versus like a more casual setting, like swiping on your phone and stuff like that. So yeah, it was a combination of, yeah, all those reasons that uh, you kind of brought up is like I get to experience a new city, warmer weather, and just like being being able to kind of work on something pretty like amazing IP was like uh, a nice part of that journey fantastic
0: and then so when you came over to respawn what was your role what about the opportunity was it that enticed you kind of like what was the challenge that you were coming in to solve
1: respawn had delivered apex quietly as well so EA wasn't expecting uh, apex to be any sort of commercial success it was a surprise they made the game was a huge i think it was february of 2018 that the game launched and it was like huge massive hit like you hit like uh, 100 million users like right away and I think if you look at the, the talent of the studio so Vince Zampella yep. who founded that studio was the person who started the Call of Duty franchise yeah like Infinity War Blood right S- yeah Infinity War so it was like you're working with some pretty like heavy hitters in the games industry like people with you can learn a lot from yeah you can learn a lot from and people who are quite passionate about the shooting space like the shooter uh, genre and uh, having grown up playing in a lot of those games, that was a really big incentive for me to come here, just to be surrounded by that type of talent. You get to work with people who made a really big impact on the games industry. They had just delivered Season 1 of Apex. It was a huge success. They really need some QA leadership kind of support on the team.
0: As you're talking about the, the monster, the kind of you could almost say overnight success of Respawn.
1: Yeah, exactly. I yeah. mean, I'm
0: sorry, of, of Apex. Apex, yeah is I kid you not, I'm pretty sure the way I judge kind of games and their trajectory is from my like Twitch dashboard. And so, you know, the first role at the time was probably dominated by like Fortnite and PUBG. And then I pretty sure Apex started cropping up in those first two slots. And I was like, huh, let me check this out. And I started watching and I was like, oh my gosh, I love your mobility in that game. And I like the classes and the 3v3, like count yeah. me in the zip lining. I was like, all right, let me go check this out, man. And that's what hooked me just from watching.
1: It's really difficult to make a game in this genre to be successful. The maps, the characters, the legend, the balance of the weapons, mm-hmm. the legends, all these different things have to come together for it to work. It's also a super competitive game, right? Yeah. Like, this is like a game with the esports kind of presence and like with a huge Twitch streamer following as well. So it's really going from like Candy Crush to, 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 to a game like this. That's a huge jump, man. I'm, I'm
0: curious like the sell, right? Like how do you sell yourself to a company who's like super hardcore, right? Like yeah. top right quadrant versus if casual and accessible is kind of the bottom left.
1: yeah. What sold them was that they didn't have someone who had sort of live games as a service type experience uh, running the QA team there. So what I mean by games as a service is a game that frequently updates two, four weeks on this very aggressive, very predictable cadence to deliver content, new legends, new weapons, new store, MTX items, all these new things that need to be kind of in the game to keep your audience Satiated, so they can keep playing the game, right? So if they don't have this, you tend to kind of lose users. So the studio was very, very familiar with delivering games as a box product. So yeah. they had just delivered uh, when it was when I was there. They also delivered Star Wars: Fallen Order, oh, which was a box a game, pro- yeah, which was a box product, critically acclaimed as well. Uh, so they were looking for someone to structure a QA team that was going to be capable of working with the development team to deliver content at a pace that they were not used to. So that makes
0: sense. So then enter Johnny from Candy Crush, you
1: know, experience, pipeline, all that, right? Like, come right over. So they were looking for someone kind of in this space. And luckily I was that person. My time there from season one to season eight was sort of like structuring the teams to be able to test early and deliver this content in a reliable, predictable way for us to uh, keep our players interested in our game. Like you said, right? If this game is free to play, right? We don't make a penny off players if we don't deliver new content or store items, right? So stuff like in game cosmetics, legend skins, weapon skins, charms, all these different things, loot boxes, right? So like people spend money on, on loot boxes were an important part of kind of testing, an important part of like making sure the game, while kind of a uh, Successful from a player's perspective, a bowling perspective, but also successful commercially, right? Like, we mm-hmm. all work for EA, right? It's a commercially kind of uh, successful company, and they wanted to make sure that a game like Apex had the proper kind of game mechanics to be able to also monetize users properly.
0: Sure. When you're talking about a game that blows up like that, and the team was not ready for it, and then they had <laughs> yeah. kind to of, kind of react.
1: It was actually, yeah, it was pretty painful the first few seasons of delivering that product because making a game that releases once a year, every two years, is very different than making small subsets of features and content that needs to be delivered every two to four weeks. Yeah. Also, like EA had a very, so a lot of times seasonal launches were in coordination. We worked in coordination with marketing, so they needed to be out on a certain time, like EA Play two, two, two years ago announced that Apex was going to be on this three-month seasonal release cadence. And each season included a new map, yep, uh, new Town Takeover, all these different things, new legend, new weapons. And those dates were fixed. So it wasn't something that you can just easily move without, like, we had a very vocal player base as a game like this would, right? Yeah, totally. So... It's all about like keeping our player base engaged and happy. And on the back end of that, how do we kind of deliver content and features out to players in a way that they were going to be happy and keep them involved in the game. And what was your title? I was a development director too. So the QA job family fits in with the DD family at, at EA. It's the equivalent of a senior sort of QA manager. I was solely on Apex, so what e a calls like the 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 q a product owner uh, of that project as well, so
0: okay, so I imagine that you had to kind of build out your team a certain way to account for the beast that is Apex <laughs> yeah um, curious how you went about structuring that man and, and finding the
1: softs and the culture you you built like most managers who come into situations, you do inherit a team so you don't build any team from scratch typically in most um, businesses. So, we, we had inherited a team that was mostly the team from Timefall 2. So, mm-hmm. that team had largely supported that launch. I had moved over to Apex. So, how big? Uh, that's more like 15 to 20. Let's just, let's just call them embedded testers, basically.
0: Nice. So those, that's the good ones. The, 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 well, that's the, way, that's the ideal way to be, I find.
1: So, yeah, they rolled up to you 15, 20 people. They didn't all roll up to me. I had uh, other sort of DMs, project managers. Nice. That had part of the line management responsibility. Okay. As part of that. But uh, a lot of them did. That's a lot, bro. Yeah, so it's a lot. I think, like always, like when you're a manager, the perfect balance, I think, of managers to direct is always, I think, like seven or eight people, because you want to appropriate the the right amount of time for professional development, performance improvements, making time for your employees, which is like such a big part of all being a manager. Like being there, I'm not doing a lot of the work sometimes, but I'm there to kind of enable and support them in their careers and in their professional life and work. So it was a legacy team from Timefall 2. Um, they had moved over to Apex. But as we grew the team, we sort of looked at skills that the team was missing that we were looking to add. So people with more leadership, talent, and people with more technical chops, all these different things we look to kind of augment the current team to make it more successful, basically. Mm-hmm. Okay. More well-rounded, I think is a good way to characterize that.
0: Were there any processes or mechanisms
1: that you had to add, or kind of everything was already set up? We constantly wanted to move QA to the left, which is the terminology that people say in software development, is like moving them early in software development. So, like when I had gotten there, they were mostly black box testers that tested the end product, but yeah. Throughout my whole time there, it's mostly moving QA to the left in order for them to be like involved from concept, mm-hmm. pre-production, design, to all the way through to deployment and post-deployment. So that was really like a big effort that we placed there and making sure that the teams incorporated QA and integrated QA into how they thought about making the game.
0: Well, let's talk about that, right? Because I, I really stand firm in the belief that, and I like this terminology, right? Like I've never heard it before, moving them to the left. I really believe in this being the ideal setup for any team. And you're right in there, right? You had to, it sounds like twice, mm. right? Like at King, you had to do the same thing. Yeah, and yeah. here at Respawn, how would you guide someone to do this on their team, right? Like what, what does that entail? Just at a high level.
1: Yeah, that is a great question. I think just approach that problem slowly and start small. So Mm -hmm. like, let's just say you're working in a studio where the QA and the production development teams are all separate silos. Mm -hmm. Yep. Don't try to have change too quickly. That's being really important because it sort of is jarring for the team. They're not sure how to work with QA at the beginning. These are developers who probably are not used to working QA in this way. They've obviously worked with QA before, but start small, right? So let's just say on Apex how we approach this, right? It's like we had very different pods of the team. So we have the team that worked on maps, the team that worked on weapons. You start with a really small pod as a use case and be like, hey, these two kind of QA professionals or QA people are going to work on your team uh, mm -hmm. to kind of do early design feedback, early test case kind of writing they just say defect prevention. They're able to catch the bugs earlier before they get into kind of like the main branch, all these different things, and test it out over a period of time. Let's just call it a pilot in embedding yeah, QA. A pilot. And once you have the proof of concept, not only is the studio more on board, people see kind of like the benefits totally. More readily. So then you're able to kind of slowly massage that process of embedding, moving left into the studios. A lot easier because you have more buy-in, people see it working, and they want that on their team. So totally. just start small, right? Don't try to make monumental transformative changes over a weekend, right? That typically never works, mm-hmm. right? So just start small and approach it with a collaborative, open mind mindset that you're doing this for X reason to solve X problem and kind of selling that back to the team.
0: Hell yeah. I like it, man. Everything builds on itself on a strong foundation of going back to this key trait that you look for, right? Is people who are open-minded, that are willing to adapt, that are willing to evolve, to try different things. I really like that, right? Pilot it, start small, send two people, let other teams kind of be infected with yeah. the gains, yeah, and you know, cause I've definitely been on feature pods and I'll look over and I'll be like, hold on, man, they got two QA people, you got (laughs) zero. Why can't we get some? Can we borrow one? You know, things like that for sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's like a very natural way to do change management or incorporate things. And like slowly it becomes like, like a success over time rather than like an overnight success. Yeah.
0: You eventually made the tough decision to leave Respawn to go to Riot. Yeah. What was one of your fondest memories at
1: Respawn? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think like I've left Respawn for a bit of time now um, and had some time to reflect as well as to kind of marinate on the question that you just asked. And I think like being part of a game team is really, really rewarding. The best way to kind of characterize is that you're constantly in release mode, so you're releasing new content, new features out to your players. And that has uh, very kind of rewarding aspects to it because you see players, they're happy, they're they're enjoying the game. Apex is a game with huge reach and you see people talking about it and all these different things. And I think that was a really rewarding part of being on Apex was that the seasonal, we, we had done season one to season eight before I left and just uh, a seasonal to seasonal kind of cadence of releasing was really rewarding because like, you see how players, how engaged they were with the game and all that. And I think that was a really awesome part of that job and being part of all these like super passionate folks that were from the Infinity War days. And like, that was a really good experience. And I've definitely learned a lot about the hardcore game space that I didn't learn about before. It was like people are very passionate about their product and small changes to like how a weapon worked or weapons sounded people kind of resonated sometimes negatively or positively to that and i think like it was just a very passionate space when was it that you knew it was time for a change we had just delivered eight seasons of apex at that point and you you were there from season two to season eight yeah season two to season eight being on a live service project is also a bit draining as well so unlike like traditional box products like you release then you get this like downward moment where like there's more flexibility for the team to kind of uh, take a breather mm-hmm. on, on some of these things. I think with Apex, Apex in its own was like in hyper growth mode. So it was like they were adding developers, production staff, QA to kind of meet. I, th- I think they've since like built
0: up a respawn office in, in PC, America.
1: right? Yeah. So uh, for season 7 and A and onwards it, it was a co-developed game hmm. uh, with the uh, old Motive team in Yeah. Uh, so they had ah. they had moved from the Motive projects, more Motive portfolio to Apex. Not all of them, but some of them. So after kind of delivering eight seasons on Apex, I felt like it was time to really take a step back and move on. So my wife was pregnant at that time. We just, we had our first child in May. COVID baby, man, congrats. Yeah. <laughs> it was really the perfect time to kind of take a few months off to kind of spend time home, it was imp- it was parenthood, so it's not like I was in Hawaii on a beach somewhere, but it was like uh two a m wake ups and all these different things, dude, yeah, I don't know how people do it, man, like and work, yeah, so it was t- it was a good time to uh take off and like reset before coming to riot, which is like another gigantic kind of games company, right so yeah, with a with- very vocal community <laughs> to put it lightly, sometimes too vocal, uh, but uh, like yeah vocal. R- local community reddit or otherwise but yeah i thought like uh, we had accomplished a lot over the six seven seasons i i respond L- lots for me and everyone else to be proud of but it was time to kind of um, move on to my next challenge and luckily riot came calling so
0: nice okay they, they came and recruited you you didn't go to
1: them i actually like we had talked for a long time
0: you had friends over there
1: I had friends over there. My boss at Respawn came from Riot. You know how the games world is? It's just like it's a very small, tight-knit. It's a very big industry, but it's a very small world, if that makes sense, right? Like, yeah, totally. Especially in LA. Especially in LA. But like, if you've been in this industry with someone like you for a long time, right? you sort of know people across the industry, right? Like When you were in Montreal, you meet mm-hmm. people... All these different things. So, and a lot of times, people get new new jobs and new points in their career through just network, totally connections. Then that's a really po- important part of how they get introduced to their next job. And that's no different from my journey to Riot. Is that I knew Seaburn Green, who's the head of QA here, and he has some interesting kind of projects and opportunities for me to kind of come to Riot and. Uh, that's how I landed here. So I'm still very new here, but trying to get the ropes and uh, learn a lot. But like League of Legends, another huge, another <laughs> huge game, probably with the largest esports following. Ever. right dude uh, that,
0: that was the first championships i watched like i'm a big fighting game person right like i Evo and mm-hmm. watching the street fighter championships that was what i thought was going to hit espn first and when i was in e3 i think it was i forgot what year yeah and i saw the league of legends championship and it was just like oh wow this is this is what pro gaming is all about, right? Like, yeah. this is the stage that now it's a thing and it's going to be on television and it's going to be a moneymaker and endorsements and all that stuff. So, yeah, that league is not a game, man.
1: Yeah. When you were younger, like, could you imagine the Staples Center, the huge stadium being filled with gamers? Oh my God. Not, not, Gamer not, fans not at all. watching not at all. a 5v5 tower defense. Game, right? Like League of Legends. Not at all, right? Like, not at all. Not in your wildest dreams, right? Exactly. I remember being a kid, man, and being ridiculed, right, for being a geek, a nerd,
0: right? Like, you know, stop playing games. You know, that's, you should be playing sports or hanging out, things like this. Yeah,
1: yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think League of Legends and Riot just proved that they could take gaming into this stratosphere, this next level that no one ever dreamed of being there right so it's, and the industry has also changed along with that like you probably couldn't imagine that you'll be watching someone else on a Twitch stream playing Mm-mm. a game right? <laughs> no no hey we'll watch this person play a game i'm like no fuck that i'm gonna
0: go play the game yeah watch someone else playing the game with. and easily man i really enjoy a lot of streams like i don't have time to play a bunch of these games that I want to play they're they're coming out so fast yeah so i enjoy watching other people play them right to kind of let me know should i buy the game or uh, when i'm doing design reference right like right see other people to see and and seeing high level versions of right like that's what's really awesome
1: yeah and obviously like the competitive landscape of games like apex and league is huge right like yeah, to watch and then and the commentary man the commentary is what makes it for me yeah, the shellcast and like you have these teams like uh, in Korea and Japan or in North America where their life is just League of Legends, yes. just Apex. They're paid to win tournaments and huge prize pools and huge followings on on Twitch. I think like when we launched one of the seasons, we had Ninja playing mm. uh, one of our one of our seasons for a long time, and like people making there's a lot more money in the space and a lot more notoriety and audience is just huge so uh, who knows right like maybe in 5 10 20 years this industry will make the next leap and whatever that is will be super exciting as well i can imagine right there's maybe some type of hybrid
0: like (laughs) physical athlete with e-athlete right like with vr ar happening
1: that could be crazy. Yeah, and you just never know, right? So from those days when we were gaming with our Nintendo 64, Super Nintendo, like oh. blowing on the cartridge, and <laughs> blowing on the cartridge. Yes. Yeah. Oh, it's not working. Let me take it out, throw a
0: bunch of saliva in it, and then throw it back in. It'll work. Yeah.
1: From that, like I remember one of my first games playing was like Mortal Kombat, oh, Street Fighter. Like Dude, you said, those good times, fighter games, and like to see where the industry is now. It's like. Such a rewarding, fun Mm -hmm. journey that we've all been on. And it's like that experience is like something that's uh, hard to change, right? Like you wouldn't change that. Yeah. Not at all, man. It's been a hell
0: of a ride. I love this industry. I love the people in it. And I really welcome people like yourself who make this podcast worthwhile, right? Like I'm, I built this as a platform for developers to get their voice and their experience out there for the benefit of the next generation or even fellow veterans in here right that just want (laughs) to see how it's done at other places see other people's struggles and insight and share knowledge and you know get a little bit kind of reinvigorated to realize like oh man we're in a pretty special privileged position right like let's keep this thing growing let's keep it going
1: yeah for sure yeah it's great to be part of it in this industry and like as a player of some of the games as well so
0: johnny man I want to put you through what I like to call the lightning round. So these okay. are short questions. Answer them however you like. Sure, yeah. If you had one game to take with you to a deserted island, what would that be? And, you know, full internet, whatever,
1: what would that be? i yeah, would be World of Warcraft. Just like the wow. story. Uh, the deep, immersive gameplay. If I'm on an island, I need kind of like... A game where I can play thousands of hours. And that's definitely <laughs> a game where you can play thousands of hours. Yeah. Good pick. Good pick. My wife would, uh, agree <laughs> with that one. Yeah.
0: yeah. Sweet. What's the last game you finished?
1: Probably Star Wars Fallen in Order, like uh, a few years ago. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Mm-hmm. That
0: was my like accessible souls, like kind of game. Yeah. yeah. What was the last book you read?
1: I've read uh, a book called "Such a Long Journey," and um let me just find the author's name. Uh, so yeah, it's a it's a book by an Indian author called. Rohinton mystery and it was like about this period in India and like uh, people's lives throughout that uh, time and it was a if you're interested in Indian culture Indian kind of religion what Indian was like in the last say like 100 years that's a great book to read it was a, i think a book that came out in the late 90s okay
0: got some got some mileage on it so such yeah. a long journey by
1: Rohinton mystery so R O H I N T O N yeah
0: dope i like that i like that Rick. i need to i need to get more well versed with that country love their food awesome people love yeah. yoga yeah. yeah what's the thing that you enjoy the most about this job
1: i get this question uh a lot and i think as a manager the most rewarding thing is seeing your team members direct self-success and seeing where their careers have gone i probably managed like hundreds of people over the last 10 years and just like um, seeing people do well in their careers and gone on to do very different things, um, not necessarily in QA, has been the most rewarding part of this, uh, this life so far. Spoken like a true people manager. I like
0: <laughs> signs of a good manager. All right. Um, what is your favorite part about working
1: from home? No commute. You save time. In LA, of course. Yeah. yeah. And just like the ability to run errands, throughout the day, work a bit later in the day to accommodate for that or early in the morning. Uh, so your life has a bit more flexibility. So you, you don't have to kind of stack everything on the weekends or Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, uh, which has been really nice. Yeah, I agree. I like that one a lot too. This is
0: moves closer to the model that I've always dreamed of, which is kind of like the European siesta vibe, like, you know, Mm -hmm. four hours in the day, couple hours break and four hours again. Then you yeah. lunch.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You have more flexibility. We have a newborn now, spend more time with my son, uh, my wife, and all these different things. And it's been uh, really nice. Awesome. What is the thing that you miss
0: the most about being in the office?
1: It's nice to have like a water cooler conversation with someone, grabbing mm-hmm. lunch with a colleague, grabbing a beer after work, all those things uh, that COVID and the pandemic has unfortunately changed building team culture and camaraderie mm-hmm. does require element of in-person interaction. And totally. I think that element has sort of been lost, right? Like, so while it is okay, we can get the same amount of work done, but like six hours of Zoom calls with people throughout the day isn't the same as like the physical energy you feed off each other in the office and like, one-to-ones mm-hmm. talking about sports talking about uh all these different things just like grabbing grabbing lunch uh, with my manager all these different things i think all those things you miss um so yeah that's the thing i miss about being in the office 100 percent. i
0: like that yeah there's a lot of organic discovery and conversations when you pass someone but like, hey come or, or just walking around someone's desk right to be like oh snap what's that i didn't even know that was a thing you know show me what this is about or let me get on the sticks yeah totally if you weren't doing this what would you be doing
1: (laughs) yeah um i'm not really sure i think the um when i was in when i was a student i was always a bit lost i was one of those like c plus undeclared C plus B students like did the minimum to get by type yeah. thing. My life, I, I wasn't a great student or like really formalized learning type person. So um, I always thought like um, it would be nice to do something in writing. So like write either like journalism, writing about kind of current events, yeah. sports, all these things that would be, if I had a second life, that's probably what I would like to kind of pursue and do.
0: That's kind of cool. I can see how your natural talent in, like, people management, soft skills, um, pulling information out of someone, helping them grow, I could see how that would lend itself well to, like, journalism, for sure.
1: Yeah, for sure. Cool.
0: All right, buddy, we're in the closeout phase here. You're almost done. Yeah. Um, want to ask you, you know, with your experience, with all the things you've seen, the growth you've seen, the different countries and studios that you've worked with and for, what do you see as something that we can do better as an industry?
1: We need to do better at being a more gender equitable workplace between all the different roles in our industry. We still suffer from a lack of females in tech roles, mm-hmm. game roles. And I like to see our industry move further into kind of how do we connect more women Mm -hmm. into this games industry? Uh, How do we encourage more uh, women to pursue CS degrees, all these different things, engineering functions? When I was in school, in my program, we probably had two or three women. Same here. Females in our kind of uh, CS classes. So if there's any way we can do to encourage more gender diversity. Mm -hmm. I think that's great. And like, I think our industry traditionally hasn't done very well here. It's not unlike companies like Google or anything like that, but uh, the treatment of kind of uh, females hasn't been historically been good. And Mm -hmm. I think we need to do better there. And I think the industry needs to kind of uh, take a more aggressive stance to like gender equity, equality, diversity in the workplace. And like, take that, uh, to heart and like, just make sure that we're always in the right direction there as well.
0: I like that. That's a great call out. It is a tough conversation to get into, but I love that you call it out, right? We have to bring awareness to it. The more people that talk about it, the more that it's out there, the more that it'll become something that be, that demands to be solved or addressed. right? So I really appreciate you bringing that out to light as a director, I know that you have a hand in helping who you hire. I know a problem that, that I fall into, right. Is that we just don't get the applicants, right? Like I would love to see more diverse applicants, but we're not getting them. Right. So what can we do to get, to see those resumes, to get those resumes, to get these people in the door?
1: Yeah. I think like, yeah, it's one of those things where like, you just don't get as many applicants compared to men in mm-hmm. most traditional tech roles i think like where we can help solve some of that is like investment in women in engineering roles mm-hmm. engineering education from a really early age like k to 12 kind of education it's like how do yeah. we make computer science programs more friendly for women and females to be in because it can be intimidating if you go to a class where like Ninety percent, ninety-seven percent are male. Yep, that's not the most welcoming space. Inviting space, <laughs> Inviting space yeah. right? You're basically in a locker room. So, how do we start at the education level to kind of support that? And I think EA and other companies have invested a lot in early education mm-hmm. to kind of make sure that there's more equity there as well. Yeah, it does tend to
0: fall on the shoulders of. The big companies that have these resources to partner with universities, colleges, high schools, grade schools, right. To install programs, to have kids visit or have developers go in and do presentations and pass down tool sets, things like this for sure. I like it.
1: All of that outreach helps, right. It is trending better, but I mean you still kind of hear about, like, the recent Activision Blizzard news and all that stuff. Big, it's like that,
0: that just hit me yesterday. I'm just like, oh, I got to yeah. read this. I still haven't read through
1: the yeah, whole thing. Yeah, and, like, hearing that is definitely a bit sad, but, like, a very reality check for, like, where our industry is and, like, where we need to go. So definitely a, a ton of work that need, is still left to be done here. So, like, yeah. All right, Johnny,
0: what would you tell 1995 Johnny? Like, if you can go back and have a conversation with him, what would you tell him? What was something you wish
1: he knew? I, I would say, like, 1995 I was 10 years old. So I don't even know what grade that is, but just All right, let's say 2000, Johnny. 2000, probably 15, probably just like step outside of the house a bit more. so i was like really like into the kind of like the gaming kind of space but stepping outside more and applying myself myself more at school i think that's the two things i really wish i had done differently so like i kind of had like a very nonchalant attitude towards life when you're 15 Uh, so i didn't really apply myself at school very much and all these different things and that's something i wish uh i could do better yeah Interesting. I mean, it seems like everything worked out pretty nicely. <laughs> yeah, everything's worked out pretty nicely. A lot of luck along the way, I think. Mm. Uh, a lot of hard work, but luck definitely plays a role in people's careers. Like the timing of when roles open, uh, when you when you get recruited. For people like us, we probably also had a lot of tailwind in our industry. Like the industry just grew a lot mm-hmm. in the last 10, 15 years, and that meant uh, a lot of new jobs, new roles, like all these different things. So no regrets, but like, yeah, maybe be a better student. (laughs) Okay. All right. I respect
0: it. We have a tradition on the show. As you're aware, maybe, maybe you aren't. If you had a good time falling out of the play area, is there someone that you would nominate to fall out of play behind you?
1: Yeah. So I'm going to nominate someone I worked and managed in montreal his name is graham barr and he's currently a senior product manager at jam city definitely be reaching out to him to get him in the picture but he's someone like i worked with really early on in my career we had a great time working together and stayed in touch afterwards as well so uh, definitely someone i would nominate to uh, be on this podcast Sweet, man.
0: Thanks for the nomination. I look forward to connecting with Graham, see if he accepts the invitation. We've had a few Jam City devs on the show from SoCal. Nice. So it'd be interesting to see how it is in Montreal. That'd be pretty sweet. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. All right, Johnny, you've made it. Yeah. The hard work is done. This is all about you. Where do people connect with you? See what you're up to? Or is Riot hiring?
1: Yeah, uh, you can connect with me the best way is on LinkedIn. Um, So just look up Johnny Wu, find me quite easily, and we can go from there. But yeah, I'm somewhat active on there, but um, I'll definitely be checking my messages if people want to connect or people want to learn more about Riot, the gaming industry, or just general kind of career paths in this QA world. Just uh, hit me up and I'll be happy to make time and help.
0: Sounds great, Johnny. Thank you for extending that. I'll make sure to link your LinkedIn in the show notes for people to follow up with that. And is there any
1: closing words for
0: the out-of-play area listeners
1: out there? Uh, No, but it was just a pleasure to do this. It's nice to kind of reflect on career and also connecting with you, John, to kind of be able to do this. It's my first time doing this, so it's a fun experience and look forward to your next group of guests and what they have to offer kind of uh, to your audience as well. Awesome, Johnny. Thank you, man. Yeah, you've had a heck of a journey, a heck of
0: a career. So it's awesome to be able to step through that with you. And yeah, thank you for coming on.
1: Yeah, stay in touch.
0: Major, major shout out to Steve Beauchamp, who I worked with at WB Games, Montreal on Sabbath and what is now Gotham Knights. We've got deep bonds having had survived the Spartan seven seal fit weekend together. Steve, I appreciate you for connecting me with this intriguing individual in Johnny. There was so much to take away in this one and if I had to emphasize just one, I would latch on the benefit and growth that he benefited from by traveling all over the world as a game developer and team building facilitator. He hit all the industry hotspots in Canada from Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, then even made it across the pond in the UK. And now he's back chilling on the West Coast. Y'all know me as much as I love me Montreal, and I have my condo out there. I got a couple places out here in Seattle and thus I'm digging some deep roots. I mean, I do have moving to London on my vision board and Catherine's fully pushing on that agenda down the line. So we'll see, but I see nothing but upside in leaving your hometown. I've experienced it and I've seen it in so many of my colleagues and friends. It forces you to focus on what you want to do with your life quick, fast, rather than being in the comfort surrounded by family and friends to survive. I'm curious, where is it that you stand on that spectrum? Much love to Riot. I'm a huge fan of Arcane on Netflix, and I'm looking forward to their fighting game. I think it's Project L and the major market line that seems to have a claim in everything these days in Tencent. So if there's any Tencent employees out there, Hit me up. I'd love to hear how you like it out there. On episode 24 in two weeks, the last Monday of this year, we'll sit down with someone many of you have told me you want to hear from. Me. I'm thinking for the closeout episode before we end the year, it'll be a shorter episode where I just sit down, kick it with y'all over some drink, and look back on the first year of doing this podcast, how it's grown thanks to your patronage and listening ears, and where I'm thinking I'll take it in 2022 and beyond, and even probably talk about some of the guests we've got lined up and whatever else comes out of my mouth under the influence. Make sure to follow us so that you don't miss out on that episode. Thank you for listening, Deb. If you found this episode informative, I ask that you pay a link forward to a developer to help grow our listener community. If you're a game developer with a story you think could help a fellow dev out, please go to outofplayarea.com and click on the Calendly link at the top to meet up. Please make sure you get approval from your manager or studio's PR or HR team beforehand. Out of Play Area, the Game Developers podcast, releases new episodes every other Monday on all the major players, including Spotify, Apple, and Google. Please make sure to follow us to see what developer falls out of the play area next time. I'm your host, John Diaz. Until next time, devs, stay strong, stay true, stay dangerous. Mega Ran, bring them home. Flight the attendants, prepare for takeoff. Captain, crew, please take your seats. We are now about to enter the out-of-play area. Yeah. If you can't reach me, I apologize. Since we out of play, I never compromise. ID, NYC, no, we got the vibe, uh, make sure you hit that follow when you hit subscribe, uh, out of play area podcast, out of play, out of play area podcast, we gotta play, it's just a little something for the game devs, stay strong, stay true, and stay dangerous, had to switch the styles for a challenge, best thing out of Harlem since young Miles Morales, a new podcast comes to provide the balance, we Welcome to the out of play area podcast a show by game devs for game devs with no ads no bs just the real. welcome to the out of play area let's go